Hey folks, thanks for joining us on the Hunt Talk podcast. Um, you are here for another hour, hour and a half of Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And today I'm I'm following through with one of the topics I've told people to expect on this podcast. And it's called The Best Hunters You've Never Heard Of. And my guest today is a guy I really look up to because in addition to running two businesses, raising teenage kids, being a volunteer coach, being a huge volunteer in the conservation world, he somehow manages to live a normal life. <laughs> and, and his name is Pat Harlan. And Pat is a longtime friend of mine. He and I ran the Ducks Unlimited Committee here in Bozeman for, what, six, seven years? Yeah, it was a lot of years. And uh, he is probably the best waterfowl hunter that nobody's ever heard of unless you went and sat in the blind with him. So anyhow, Pat Harlan is our guest today, and he is going to be able to give you some insight to the real Randy Newberg. I hope not incriminating insight of, of any way. Possible but. incrimination. But. <laughs> <laughs> Pat and I, when we go duck hunting, it, it, we almost, I, I, I thought about this one time, Pat, when I think it was the last time when we were out at Mark's me and you and Butler were in that blind and we were laughing so hard and solving so many of the world's problems. I thought, you know what? We just need a TV camera here with us mic'd up and just let it roll. That would have been probably one of America's funniest home videos. There was a lot of lies going on that day. And I think we even I think we even found that day a bent barrel of a shotgun. Yeah, we did. I bent the barrel on my shotgun. How did you do that? I had an obstruction in the barrel. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, it was... <laughs> I mean, it, a, a group of ducks came in, and I didn't realize it, and Pat says, take them, and it was my turn, and I stood up, and I aimed for the lead duck, and I killed the one about 10 feet below it. <laughs> Randy's a good shot, and, and and when you see him miss a couple, two, three times, we're going, what's going on here, you know, and at the end of the day, we started, you know, examining the gun, and yeah, yeah the, the barrel's bent. Yeah, Pat's like, what's that big bulb in the end of your barrel? I'm like, whoa. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, but anyhow, <clears throat> um, thanks for listening with us, folks. Uh, we're going to go through some more of your questions out on our Hunt Talk forum. Uh, that forum is a big part of where we interact with people and get a lot of information. And I'd sent Pat the link with some of these questions and He's like, man, there's some guy who asked whether you wear boxers or briefs. I'm worried about this audience you have that follows you. <laughs> but but uh, we're going to pull some of these questions from Hunt Talk. And uh, with that, it's I don't know where it's going to lead us, Pat. Uh, so whatever you want to say is on your mind. Uh, you say it. And if you shouldn't have said it, We'll erase it <laughs> and redo it. Well, we've been but, down. Uh, we've been down that road, not knowing where we're going to go a time or two. So yeah, we'll so, be good at that. So uh, also with me is Dan Doty. Dan is the producer of this podcast. He he's with Zero Point Zero. They produce the Meat Eater TV show and the Meat Eater podcast. And if there's any technical production issues, Dan, I guess. I, you know, I got to have someone to blame. We're blaming Some, you. Yeah. No, that's why I'm here. I'm here to blame. Yeah. Okay. That's I, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of how TV show hosts operate. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's always the camera guy's fault. I, of course. You you know that. You ran a camera for Steve forever, of right? Of course, but I was just so good at it, I couldn't get blamed for much. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> No, that's what my wife says. Oh, it's a good thing you have camera guys because you wouldn't have a wife yeah. to blame out well, there. They, and, and, and they make you guys look good. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the Dans of the world that, that definitely make us TV guys look way better than we really are. Because Thank my, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> as my one friend, Jerry Pritchard, he and I grew up in Big Falls. And in this podcast over time, people are we're going to be the tourism uh advocates for big falls minnesota <laughs> yeah minnesota's back on the map and specifically big falls <laughs> pat's heard this but anyhow jerry's a buddy of mine and he's like randy the fact that you have your own tv show it shows you how far a line of bullshit will get you in this world <laughs> <laughs> and uh but anyhow dan you've been thumbing through those questions and i could answer any of them I don't know if there's one specific one that you think today is going to take us down some path that leads us through the weeds or... Well, 
I, I guess honestly, I'd, I'd, um, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of questions here that look great, but I would, first of all, I'd love to hear just more about um, your your hunting experience and uh, particularly the the waterfowl hunting and I guess what you guys have done together and just I don't know, get a little more background on on what on your hunting life on Pat. Yeah. I don't know if we can do that. With we might step outside the bounds of. Yeah, I grew up in Eastern Montana. I mean, there, this thing can go down a road we don't want to go down. Yeah, he cut me off right away. I was about ready to get into the good stuff, and you notice yeah. Pat cut me off. But <laughs> anyhow, I'll let Pat describe himself and what he does. But he's get, he's he will understate his accomplishments. Let's put it that way. Uh, in a, in in all honesty, I was really fortunate to grow up where we did you know i mean it's uh, i grew up in eastern montana on the bighorn river and you know right next to two reservations and and at the end of the day i mean it wasn't a easy place to grow up but if you like to do the stuff my brother and i like to do which was hunt and fish i mean it was a paradise and you know i mean we did our share of terrorizing that paradise you know <laughs> as we grew up but you know i i think you know we were fortunate enough to have parents that you know we grew up on a farm and around animals and raise registered cows and you know so we we got that conservation thing kind of in our blood and you know coupled that with hunting and fishing and you know we orphaned my mom a lot my my dad and my brother and i <laughs> you know and if she wanted to see us, she came along with us but you know i mean we grew up in a hunting fishing paradise where you, we could we could do it all and this kind of got us hooked you know on on the outdoors and you know, and that's kind of led what led Randy and I down the same road of, you know, I mean, growing up in small town America and, you know, having a passion for hunting and fishing and, and by doing that, you know, I mean, we, we got hooked up together and, you know, I mean, don't hunt as much as we'd like to, you know, because we're both really busy. But when we do go, I mean, it's probably some of the funner times that I've, I have out there. And, you know, we both have a passion for, for Randy, probably more so a big game than me. I mean, we just, have had a passion for waterfowl and that's kind of what got us together and into the du thing and conservation organizations and so selfishly i grew up a waterfowl hunter in north dakota big time and having just moved to montana um i'm just curious and we don't have to get into too much of the podcast but maybe later i'd i'm curious about you know i don't know is montana a waterfowl Paradise, we, or I, I, we can't tell people. I can't tell. tell no, you can't talk. Can't, can't tell you the truth on yeah. air. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Actually, if you came to Montana in December, waterfowl hunting, you would think you were in the waterfowl capital of the world. Yeah, it's almost not fair. In fact, last time Pat had me in the blind, we shot ducks so fast that the last ducks of the limit, you have to shoot with your off hand. So if you're right-handed, you have to shoot left-handed. If you're left-handed, you have to shoot right-handed. Otherwise, you'd be done so quick. Yeah. Wow. And the last time we did, I think it took me like 20 shots to get my last duck with my left hand. And when I did finally get it, I didn't kill the one I was aiming for. <laughs> there was a reason for that, as we mentioned earlier. His, uh, you know, it, it wasn't Randy. It was that gun wasn't shooting so straight. But, but. Yeah, we, you know, I mean, and, and I would tell you that specifically waterfowl-wise, the goose population in montana and as you probably see in north dakota i mean we're in i mean we're in the greatest times you know the goose population continues to grow and grow and grow and you know the number the limits go up so i mean it's a great i think avenue to get kids into because you know i mean there's a lot of shooting and there's a lot of opportunity you know i mean the 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 ability to get on private farms is tougher you know i mean but i think it's it's you know still probably one of the easiest to get on because it's waterfowl, you know, I mean. And that's the beauty of waterfowl hunting for younger hunters. Like you said, you get to shoot a lot, and you can make it as hard or as easy as far as discomfort and challenge and physical effort as you want. I mean, I my son grew up, I mean, even today, I, I tell people, if there was a 350-inch bull elk in a parking lot, or one mallard that he had to drag his decoys over two mountain ranges. He's such a waterfall decoys. that he'd drag his decoys over two mountain ranges for yep. one mallard before he'd shoot a 350-inch bull elk in the parking lot. Well, and you've seen and, Bailey do the same thing. Yeah. I mean, they, all these kids, I think, start with big game and then realize that you may go all year and maybe get to pull the trigger once, and you can go one day and pull it 50 times. Right. 
you know, so you can kind of get them into used to pulling the trigger, and I, I, I'd hook some. Yeah, I remember when my son was 10, he's, he looks at me, and he's like, Dad, I love the smell of gunpowder. Anyhow, that's a little bit about Pat Harlan. We'll, uh, I, I'll try not to get you in too much trouble, Pat, because you are a business owner, and I don't want your clients calling you up saying, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> me, you can say whatever you want about me. It's whatever. I, I've already shot my political career by being a TV host. So so here's a question that kind of goes from that. Randy, have you ever done a uh, waterfowl TV show? If not, why? And what is what is your own relationship to, to hunting waterfowl and small game? Yeah. Um, I've never done a waterfall episode. It often ends up on the potential let's do it list. Um, but the part of that is just the TV world. You know, you have sponsors that expect you to do a certain thing. You know, like, Randy, you are the Western big game guy and you're the public land guy. We've already got three other shows that are doing waterfowl or whatever for us. So if you want to do one, go ahead. Um, and the other reason I haven't done one is I save most of my waterfowling days for just me and friends or me and family. And, you know, like Pat, the few times we get to go out, the last thing I'm going to do is drag cameras around that interferes with friend time together. Or when my son comes back to Montana in the wintertime. I mean, right now it's June and he's already telling me, Dad, over Christmas, here's... He's ready. Yeah, here's where we're going waterfowling. So I'm not going to interrupt that with cameras. Uh, I grew up as as a duck hunter and a and a small game hunter in northern Minnesota, where I grew up. It's like the rough grouse capital of the world, and all, uh, and not the capital. It's the most overlooked rough grouse place in the world. And all my buddies back home right now are just killing you. Yeah, they're <laughs> slamming their radios like, "Shut your stupid mouth, Newberg!" <laughs> but. You know, uh, we grew up there, and, and here here's an episode that we're going to do in, in Minnesota someday, and it gives people a little bit of insight about Randy Newberg and how I grew up and how Pat Harlan grew up, is we're going to go up there, and we're going to go hunt rough grouse, or as they call them in Minnesota, partridge, and we're going to use our long tom 12 gauges, you know, going to have a 30-inch barrel with a full choke, and we're going to ground pound them. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to shoot them off stumps, out of trees. I mean, that's what I grew up doing. That's how we did it. That's yeah. what I did, too. You know, yeah. I I see yeah. these shows where guys show up with, the, you know, two $10,000 dogs and a $5,000 shotgun. That's not us. No, those are the people we used to make fun of. Yeah. They were city slickers is what we call them. Yeah. And for us, shooting partridge was, that was dinner. I'd get off the school bus. I'd go down along what we called the Indian Trail. It was an old trail that followed the river. I'd be poleaxing grouse with the, I mean. <laughs> on the way to school. Yeah. I, I mean, I was not going to let one get away. If you let one flush, your dad would box your ears. <laughs> you know? So we're going to go and do an episode like that sometime just to give people the understanding of this is Randy's roots. I did My roots are planted in the small game upland bird waterfall world and pat i mean same, you, you grew up in pheasant country yeah. waterfall country it's numerous days shooting your lemon on the way to school i mean we could not have grown up in today's world no i mean there's no way the <laughs> the shotguns were in the pickup when you pulled up to the schoolyard you checked your traps on the way into town you know i mean yeah yeah it wouldn't it would not we're lucky we're back a few years when when we grew up because oh, for sure i mean i i think about there there was not a kid in our school who didn't carry a pocket knife. Because if you were on your way to school and there was a road-killed mink or raccoon in the road, you hit the brakes, you jumped out, you threw them in the trunk of the Nova, and mom <laughs> took it home. And when you got off the school bus that night, you were skinning, skinning that stretching thing it. and yeah. stretching it because yeah. you are going to sell it when the fur buyer came exactly. to town the next week. Yeah, I mean, if you were a kid and you didn't have one of those old-timer jackknives, Old, we call yeah. them, you were really down and out, man. You, you. It was like today. You, if you didn't have your Air Nikes or something, right. you know? <laughs> But part of the part of the wardrobe. Yeah. So I don't know, Dan. Am I going deep enough into that topic of why, why we aren't doing no, waterfall totally. hunts? Yeah, I love doing it. I mean, it's it's just so much fun. We get to do it so little, though. I mean, and like you say, I mean, the the blind time is. 
Right. For us anymore, I mean, probably not the kids, but for us right. anymore, it's way more important than the hunt. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. for us, I mean, if someone calls and says, well, the birds aren't really flying that much, I'm like, well, good. That way I don't get, my conversations don't get interrupted yeah. that much. <laughs> yeah, we've solved, we've solved a lot of the world's problems in a duck blind. Oh, no kidding. I mean, if, if you could apply the, the solutions we've found in duck blinds and give them to Congress... There, we'd have solved world peace yeah, we were geniuses. Yeah, we'd, we'd have that solved by this time. But So later this year, you guys should do a podcast in the blind, I think. Hey, Pat, uh, th- that'd be pretty th- fun. That, wouldn't it? <laughs> we, may, we may end up with having to do a bunch of those bleeps when, when the dog's not paying attention. Or, blame, we'll blame it on the dog instead of us. But or, or if I can't blame an obstruction in my barrel or something and five green heads come in and five green heads leave with no... That, no, won't, ha- that won't happen. Okay. So, it, uh, and here's the funny part of it. Pat is such a good shot. He goes in there with this little 20 gauge that it's like being there with a slingshot. I contemplate shooting mallards out of a blind with a 10-gauge because I have a 10-gauge, <laughs> but I kind of don't want Pat to harass me, so I show up with my 12-gauge. Uh, so, and he shoots way more with his 20-gauge, or, or how should I say it? The number of shells it takes him to get a limit with a 20-gauge Way less than what it takes for me to get a limit with a 12-gauge. But I get my money's worth. Well, it, that's it. You know, you know, I mean, you, what do we tell those kids? It's all about fire. And, I mean, we don't right. need to be out of here in five minutes. I mean, <laughs> practice. Yeah. And for me, ammo is free. You know, when exactly. You, when you produce a TV show, you get all the ammo you want. So I'm not going to let ammo get in the way of me having a good time. So. So what's next, Dan? You, well, you, there's there's a hundred questions on here about conservation. I think maybe to tie it back in, um, I was curious. You said that you know now are the good times, especially for like goose populations around here. What's um, I'd be curious about why that is. Why are the waterfowl populations so high? And uh, what and also what has your involvement been in the in the conservation world in, in that? I mean, I've heard a lot. Of, you know about your work with Rocky Mountain Owl Foundation and, and sort of the big game and just the general public land. But how does I don't know how do, how does the what are some successes or failures of of the conservation world in the waterfowl yeah. arena? Well, and that's where Pat and I kind of really got to be good friends. Is I think both of us were passionate about conservation for the next generation. Pat's kids are fourteen and sixteen. Uh, at the time when I really got into DU, my son was, I think, 10 or 11. And, he was, yeah. And uh, so for us, it was just a way to give back more, to to do something that we just felt was an obligation. I, I think a lot of hunters kind of feel that way, and some of them express that sense of responsibility by being a hunter-ed instructor. Maybe they're a scout leader. Maybe they're whatever. They're just a mentor to some neighborhood kids. For us, it was Ducks Unlimited. I mean, it was... It yeah, was, and you hit it on the nail, like giving back. And we had a good mentor. Yeah. And Eric did. Pierce. Right, yeah. And, did, sure. you know, I mean, the, the amount of wetlands that were being lost, and and still to this day, I mean, everything, you know, it's not just duck hunters, but everything needs water. So, I mean, we, we looked at it as it was, you know, we weren't just helping ducks, we were helping everything, which was right down our alley. And And at the end of the day, I mean, we got a lot, you know, I, I can remember Randy's son coming to every DU banquet, you know, and I mean, they, he, he became part of it, as did my kids, you know, I mean, delivering, you know, some of the raffle drawings and whatever. I mean, they just, they look forward to it. And and I think it is the good times because we are, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, birds, especially geese, have adapted and become more, you know, le- less rural and more urban maybe, you know, I mean, in your country in Minnesota, I mean, I know, and in Colorado, that. I got buddies that shoot them on golf courses. Right. Yeah. We got goose shit on every golf course in America, which I guess is a testament to the conservation totally. efforts of, of waterfowl hunters. And the limits. Right. I mean, you can shoot, you can shoot, you know, I mean, higher limits than we ever thought possible, uh, you know, I mean, with, with that. So, you know, I do think it's great times. and But about the time that we sit back and rest on our laurels and don't think, you know, I mean, like, like all of us, it works so well we quit doing it. And about the time we do that, I mean, we could find ourselves back in the day. I remember limits on the bighorn for ducks in the 80s that were two two birds. Really? Yeah. Wow. What is it now? Six? Uh, yeah, Seven. five five mallards with a with a bonus duck. Yeah. But 
and you got seven on the western side of the state. Right. So, and, and across the United States, well, for the most part, not every place, but across the United States, waterfall is doing extremely well. Right. East index. And, but back to your point, Dan, a big part of that conservation connection was growing up, my dad instilled in me that you give back more than you take. And I wanted to do that, but a lot of these conservation groups are a good place to teach your children this is a mechanism or a vehicle by which you can give back more than you're taking. And so I looked at that and said, wow, my son can be involved, my wife can be involved, I can be involved, and we can make a difference. Because I just think it's part of the hunting culture that we teach the next generation how to do it, why we do it, but we also try to instill in them this value of someone gave it to us better than it was before. Our job is to make it better for you, and then you'll pass it on to someone in a better manner. So Leave it better than you found it. Yeah. I mean, and that model you guys use at the Rocky Mountain Elf Foundation, I love, it's, it's pass it on down, right? Uh, that was, that was a, one a old model. Right. That was an, one of the models that. the Elk Foundation had, and now our new motto or tagline is hunting is conservation. I mean, it's that simple. It, where, uh, wherever you go, you can find conservation that is, it, it's got the fingerprints of hunters all over it. I mean, you think about it. In today's world, everyone thinks the United States has this conservation ethic that it just arose in the last 30 years since Earth Day in, what, 72 or something. But really, it was a, over 100 years ago that Theodore Roosevelt and his buddies got together, formed the totally. Boone and Crockett Club, and they said, enough is enough. All this market shooting, all this exploitation isn't going to happen on our watch. And so hunters have been, we're the ones who invented the term conservation. We're the ones who planted that seed in the American culture. And if it weren't for the foresight of hunters 100 years ago, the collective conservation ethic that we have in the United States wouldn't be here. And the you know, hunters practice it more than anybody. Exactly. We, we are the ones who are not just talking about it. We're, we're doing something about it. And if hunting and hunters can be criticized, it's that maybe we haven't done a good enough job of explaining what we've done and why it is that there are now wild sheep all over Nevada when oh. they once disappeared. Why is it that today there are more elk in the North American continent than any time in my life? Like you said, it just didn't happen. Right. It, it happened by work plan and design and funding and volunteerism of hunters there's there's two key points i think you make and that's every i think a lot of people think that you have to have a lot of money to to, to be a conservationist no. and, and I, that's another thing i love when you watch the advertisements of the elk foundation i mean there's a lot of guys out there in the grassroots rolling up barbed wire right i mean it doesn't take you don't have to be a, a wealthy person to be a conservationist. I no. mean, you gotta you gotta have a strong back and be willing to get out there and work. Right, and really, uh, the conservation starts in your heart or your soul. Exactly, it, it's, it's a mindset. It's a an ethos of this is who I am and this is what I'm gonna do. And I just wish we, as the hunting community, were more uh, assertive in. Letting the world know, you know, I'm not taking a back seat to you because you think you have some moral high ground over how you acquire your food and how you look at the landscape. I, in fact, that gets my hackles up. Yeah, me too. I call it a new age religion. You know, in the last 40 years, there's this new religious movement that somehow if I hire somebody else to go and do the killing for me, that I'm now better than everybody else. Bullshit. I, under no way, shape, or form am I going to accept that because the honest relationship I have with my food by going and killing it myself, by cleaning it, by processing it, cooking it, and it, my family seeing how that happens, their connection to the landscape and how we as humans impact that landscape and impact that wildlife that water quality that air quality and the word i'd use is respect it right i mean nobody respects the animal more than the hunter no now, now don't get me wrong i mean there's there's the there's the tiny tiny few in anything you look at right. that's that's but, disrespectful 
disrespectful of it, but for the most part, the hunter respects it more than anybody. Right. And, and I think if hunters would kind of stand their ground and say, you know what, if you want to have that perspective of life that the landscape out there, you're just supposed to be a spectator, knock yourself out. But don't think those of us hunters who, we're not spectators, we're participants. We are out there participating on the landscape, acquiring our own food, doing everything that gives us a level of depth and understanding and connection that you can't get by being a spectator. You, you just can't. And so I, <laughs> people usually only one time give Randy their self-righteousness BS about, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, I eat, I'm a vegetarian, or I, I only eat organic. By the time I'm done with them, they wish that they wouldn't have opened their mouth. <laughs> no, I, and I don't do it in a brutal way. It's just matter of fact. We eat yeah. organic too, right? I'm, yeah, there's nothing I'm, more organic than the than the than the cow elk that my you know my kid yeah. shot last year. Right. I mean, we are the ultimate organic farmers. Uh, and and here's the other part of it. We have you know whether you think the the world is six thousand years old or six million years old, we've got history since time began on our side of saying you know what. The human body has evolved. My DNA strain says, I'm going to go, and when I see that rabbit or I see that bird or I see that deer or elk, my mind says, that's food. And I'm not going to back away from the fact that that animal gave its life for me. And, and the most profound thing, and it's like it happened yesterday. I was 14 years old. Shot a white-tailed doe in Minnesota. First deer I ever shot. And I remember my dad and I tracking that, and we came up on it and was not yet dead. And it, you know how a deer has this really brown, sparkly look in its eyes. And as I'm standing there, it's, it's dead now, and it goes to that bluish-green look. And I was at least smart enough to know that meant it died. And it just tore me up. I mean, I walked around the brush, and I'm, I mean, I got tears running down my face, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And fortunately, my dad knew, hey, this is. Knew the feeling. Right. And, but today, that, that event is so profound to me that every time I sit down at the meal, and whether it's, you know, antelope, elk, I don't care what it is, if it's a fish I caught, I think about that white-tailed doe. And... She died so that we could eat. I mean, food was our number one motivation for hunting growing up. And I will never lose that connection to food. If I lose that connection to food for my purpose for hunting, I'm going to sell my gun, sell my bow. Be done. I'm, yeah. And I'm going to go take up shuffleboard or something. And I, I don't have to make any apologies or excuses for that. I think but, that a lot, a lot of people look at hunters and think it's all about the kill. Yeah, it, and you and I have talked about this as we get older, but I mean, I think it becomes less and less about that. Completely, it's yeah. a, you know, it's a subsistence, of surviving, and the food aspect of it, and you know, caught walleyes last week, and I mean, you know, slot limits, keeping the right one, but you know, the food aspect of it. But most hunters aren't just natural, cold-blooded killers. No, it makes people uncomfortable. I think is the enjoyable part of it. I just recently raised and slaughtered a dozen meat chickens. And uh, I don't think it, it's it's there's something different. I'm very curious about the difference. And you said you grew up on a farm and, and very familiar with that life. The difference between farming for food and hunting for food. I, I think what gets people and is that there's an enjoyment. There's a there's like there is a rush of of hunting and killing, and in the in a, in a very different way that I don't think. I've ever heard anybody say, oh, you really enjoyed butchering those chickens. That was fun. You're terrible for that. It's a little different. And I think um, that is, that's the point of reckoning. I think that hunters, need, we need to speak really clearly about is that it, it doesn't devalue the entire process because it is an enjoyable it, thing. It is. Do. I mean, and, and it's not just a modern-day thing. I, you look back at hunting as a culture. Uh, not just our current culture, but since time began. 
why, why are there so many rituals and so many celebrations and so many, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of their tales and their stories or even parts of their faith and religion was based upon the hunt. And they and provided for the tribe or for the exactly the, the family or right. whatever. And it was it was a, a ritual of one celebration, a ritual of thanks, a ritual of respect. And you bundle all those together and like you say, Dan, it is it creates this fun, exhilarating experience that somehow has the dichotomy of watching an animal die. And, and that part of it is hard to reconcile. I, I mean, even today, I, I don't know how many animals have been through my freezer and through my body, but every animal that I kill, when I walk up there, I, the, the aroma of the animal, the, the feel, the the senses just connects me of man the life this animal led to to get to this point. And well, and that, if you watch you on your show, and it's one of the things I really like about what you do there is you walk up and you thank the animal, right? I, I mean, for the challenge, the the meat. You know, I mean, I, I think that's a that's a noble thing. And yeah, and I do that purposefully because that is the profound part of hunting where. You have this rush, kind of like they did back when they ran the buffalo off the cliffs here just west of town. Right. You know, I'm sure there were big fires and celebrations and, you know, the guy who run the most off or found the herd or whatever was probably the... The the hero. Yeah. And it's no different today. But one thing they always had and one thing I will always have is this respect and showing that respect visibly and within myself that this animal is going to be my food. And I'm not going to apologize for that. Anyone who sits down to a meal, I don't care if you're a vegetarian, I don't care if you're a farmer or a, a hunter, a fisherman, there is blood on your hands or on somebody's hands for that food to be on your plate. It's, it's because you're buying it in a store doesn't mean <laughs> some of the stuff we're talking about didn't happen. Right. You know, and I've had, I don't know how many discussions with vegetarian people. Um, and I tell him, go buy the book Blood Ties, written by a friend of mine, Ted Carasotti. And anyone listening, if you can, go to Ted's website and buy the book Blood Ties. And it talks about Ted was not a hunter. He was actually against hunting. And then he, through his process of, of writing and, and through his life, he went and lived with the indigenous people in Greenland, really understood an appreciation for hunting, uh, became a hunter, a subsistence hunter himself. And then he does this big research about what the fossil fuel footprint is for a pound of protein acquired via farming, because uh, you go buy it at the you know the organic food market, versus him shooting a mule deer doe in his backyard or a cow elk in his backyard. It's some, I can't remember, it's been a long time since I read those chapters. It is such a factor, a, a multiple of 6x or 10x of your fossil footprint compared to hunting. I'm like, you go read that. And you tell me that I'm the good for nothing for the way I acquire my food. It, it just, it, it's, it's not there, but <laughs> so Dan's giving me this look like, all right, Randy, we get it. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think, I think you could talk about it for, for, it's so important. It should be talked for nonstop. It's, yeah. I mean, you guys deal. produce the meat eater show and you guys, it's a heavy focus on meat. Is this the same kind of feedback you guys get from, from absolutely a hundred percent? And I and I think we've just seen um, you know anecdotally, personally, and through all of the emails we get and everything is is how many people do live this way of, of harvesting their own meat and understand that lifestyle, and that how important and effective it is to I don't know help show the rest of the world that that there is you know the the legitimate um, moral like foundation of hunting is there and I, yeah and i think you know i've been really proud of, of being a part of of um sharing that message so so consistently and i think it can't be shared enough you know and it's and it's funny people get it you know yeah i mean i don't know how you know you feed people a a, a meal of, of game meat or you take them out hunting or just show them an episode of your show or, or our show and and um it makes sense it's it's not it's it just I've never had anybody say, well, that 
makes no sense. Right. It's been the opposite. Yeah. Well, I don't watch a lot of those shows, but those are two shows that I do like to watch just based on the fact that, you know, it, it is way more than just, you know, pulling trigger. Yeah. There's a lot a lot more there in both of those shows. You know, you guys um you guys do a good job there. There's two questions from the from the uh website um Hunt Talk. Kind of we you touched on a little bit about um the beginnings of the conservation movement um and the questions were simple you can pick one or or answer them both. But why can't you sell any venison or meat? over and above what you need for your own personal consumption. And then there was uh, some conversation, and then there was a very straight question, what is the North American model of wildlife management? Yeah. And I think those are, those are big questions, mm-hmm. but they're important because they, um, they really kind of tie a lot of the, this together. Yeah, and the, they're somewhat connected, and one starts earlier than the other. Uh, the North American model of wildlife conservation is kind of how the United States, Canada, and to some degree Mexico have managed their wildlife from the brink of extinction of a lot of species to a point of abundance today. And it has seven tenets to it. I'm not going to go through every one of them, but one of those tenets are no commercial markets for wildlife. Because back in the the dark days of wildlife, um, I mean, you think about, we live in Montana, Pat and I, and at one time... There were millions and millions of bison here. And the market shooters liquidated these bison herds to the point that over the course of about 15 years, there were no, you know, 10 million bison or 4 million, whatever, lived in Montana were gone. That's when you guys were kids, right? <laughs> I got no hair and mostly gray. Mine's gray. Mine's gray. See, Dan's in his He's early, really aging us. Yeah, I know. He's in his early 30s, so he can say that stuff, but yeah. someday. But no, that's why history was so easy for me, Dan. When I was in history, there were only four presidents. So I asked, name, name all the presidents. It was easy. But, um, anyhow, the, you know, market shooting was part of what drove these species to the brink and whether it was for their meat for their hides for their bones at times uh, it was for all kinds of things and getting back to to pat and i and our connection to the waterfowl and bird world is the the market for women's hats almost well it did lead to the extinction of a few bird species but they would make these hats out of elaborate feathers and, and, you know, that, that's how the, when Theodore Roosevelt established the first national wildlife refuge down in Florida, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Part of it was to protect these rare bird species that people were shooting for the markets to, for women's hats. And they actually had a public campaign back in that day to say, hey, women, fashion people, you are resulting in, in the extinction of species here. Because you kill these animals when they're at their greatest plumage. Well, when's that? When they're breeding. When they're, when they're yeah. You know? Maybe. And so it was, it was at that time where in the United States, we decided, you know what? Markets are not good for our wildlife. And so to answer that person's question, even today, in some places they say we have too many deer, we have too many whatever. You can't sell it. If you want to start one of these captive breeding cervid operations, um, you can, I guess if you go through the right process, you can sell some of that meat. But I'll tell you, one of the areas that I think hunters, again, and, and it took me down a different road when you said hunters and selling meat, but you can't do it. But some of the programs that have been introduced by some of these states with respect to hunters for the hungry, and right, yep. you can give it away to those people who need it. Yeah. And we've got local processing plants that, and I'm I'm sure it's not unique yeah. to Montana, but where you can, you know, the the processors will process this stuff. So, you know, again, giving, leaving it better than you found it, and giving back. You know, yeah. I mean, you're not selling it, but we're giving it to people who really need it. Yeah, which gets to another question someone asked: Is Randy, you're on the road, you do ten to twelve hunts a year. What do you do with the meat? Do I process it myself? Or whatever. Well. What I do with the meat is I, I have two freezers. I keep as much of it as I need. My camera guys have first dibs. Any guest hunter has next, next dibs on it. 
Um, we have neighbors who are older and like in one example, her husband has passed on and she, I mean, wild game was, <laughs> was her thing. And so I make sure and do that. I volunteered down at the food bank many years ago before I got so busy. And if any hunter goes and volunteers at a food bank, their idea of how valuable protein is to our communities totally is, is going to change. Yeah. Like last year, I posted on Facebook that my wife and I were not going to spend five, $600 mailing out, you know, 1,000 Christmas cards or 500 Christmas cards. We were going to make a donation to the food bank. Um, we made a cash donation, but also... The fact that every year I specifically go to some of my landowner friends and say, can I come and shoot two or four white-tailed does? And if you're going to donate your meat to the food banks, it's got to be commercially processed by an FDA-approved uh, processor. And so I take those does, and, and I'm not going to go donate a ruddy old buck. I mean, no. I want these people to have good meat. Good quality meat. So yeah. I take some fat alfalfa-fed doe. I take two, four of them out to the processor. I pay to get it processed, and I take it down to the food bank. And at least in Montana, and in a lot of the other states I travel, like Iowa has a huge program. There, there's these food banks are so appreciative of hunters. And back to your point, Pat, it's it's just part of you know what we do and and how we uh, share the abundance that conservation has created with with our community. Well, and it ties right back into working with the landowner and the fishing game for a sustainable number of the species. You right. know, I mean, you, you have to manage the population for the, for the existence to continue. And if you don't, I mean, you see disease step in, you see all this, this right. stuff you don't want to see, but you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're working the whole chain of people involved in making this thing work. And the landowners, I, I, I think appreciate it. Oh yeah. And, to the, to the one other part of that question is, do I process my own game? Growing up, that was like the rite of passage. That, that was something that my family took so seriously. I mean, you got lectured hard about how to take care of game. And now that I know more about taking care of game, I'm like, whose stupid idea was that, Grandpa? Because <laughs> some of the things we did, I mean, my family thought you left all the fat on wild game. <laughs> and you put it in the freezer and it goes rancid and people wonder why you have this real gamey taste. Well, not in our family. Oh, don't be trimming that fat off there. It's like, okay. I mean, that's that's what you grew up. That's what was passed on. But um, I, if Randy wasn't a TV show host, I could almost be a, a game processor. I enjoy it that much. I mean, and some of my guest hunters will look at me like, man, this guy's got some sort of problems because I, I'm like, hey, Will you allow me the pleasure of field dressing or quartering or boning this animal? And they're like, no, I can do it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I, this is fun for me. This is, I, I, I know it sounds weird, but when that animal hits the deck and we've given our thanks and our respects, I enjoy field dressing from the time we start to the time I get home and it's in little packages in the freezer. And well, it's all part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's not just again the pulling of the trigger. I mean, it, that that makes the meal right. all that much better that you took care of it. Yeah, and and I I wish I wasn't so busy at times because I'm going from hunt to hunt to hunt. So a lot of times I got to use a commercial processor. But I <laughs> we all know when you go to the commercial processor and you see it's the you know a busy weekend of hunting and you see. 44 deer laying there and like cordwood you're like mm, i don't know if i want my deer to be number 45 am i gonna get my deer back or you know what's the deal and i'm so meticulous with how my meat is cared for in the field because it starts right there if if, if you're haphazard or you know half baked and how you're taking care of the meat out in the field the best processor in the world isn't going to be able. Yeah, can't to. can't fix your can't fix your mistakes. So I, I don't know. I, I sure miss doing it all. And even when I go walleye fishing, you know, I uh, here in Montana, will we have uh, a lot of these fish cleaning stations that Walleyes Unlimited and Fish, Wildlife, and Parks have put in there. I go and hang out down at the fish cleaning. Those station. are some good times right there. Yeah, I mean, not only do you get to BS a lot, but I'll help guys clean their fish because when I was growing up. 
Randy, you are the fish cleaning guy. I don't know how many thousands of walleyes I've probably filleted in my life. And there was a guy who taught me how to do it. His name was Kenny Obermeyer. And uh, I used to date his daughter. And so he'd take me fishing all the time because I think he wanted a son. He only had two daughters. And so I was allowed in the household because he needed a fishing buddy, not because I was worthy of anything. But <laughs> And he needed someone to skin his fish, I think. But anyhow, he he instilled in me a connection to food like nobody ever. I mean, that guy could skin a fish, and when you got done, it looked like transparent wax paper. There was not any meat. It was just a carcass. And so I learned from him, and I've taken that with me. And when I go to the fish cleaning station and I watch people clean fish, and they, you know, two fillets of fish are kind of wasted because of how they do it, it's all I can do to not open my mouth. But anyhow, we're, we're really getting off in the weeds there, Dan. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I don't think there's a such thing as weeds here. It's all good. <laughs> so are we allowed to tell childhood stories? Please. Today, Dan? please. Oh, I, I don't think we better do that. <laughs> I think you better do that, actually. Yeah. Pat and I were talking before, and, and this is to give people a little more insight about the Randy Newberg who's unfiltered, he'll understand why I have to be filtered when I'm on TV or I, <laughs> I'd be I'd be done doing TV, but we were talking about a story I posted on my Facebook page the other day of growing up and how many people responded to that post and what it is, and those of you who have read it, you're gonna laugh. But <clears throat> I grew up in this little town in northern Minnesota, and my mom has this big family of brothers. She's got six brothers. The youngest is a year older than me, and then two years old, three years older than me. So we were like trouble in spades. There were, and then my oldest cousin, we were one, two, three, and four years apart. I mean, it was, and we were always in trouble. I mean, I, the what's the the Christmas story? Ralphie, the the kid with the BB gun. <laughs> I watched that. I've seen it a thousand times and I still roll on the floor laughing because that was me and my buddies and my uncles and my cousins, cousins. growing up. I mean, we were always don't shoot your eye out kind of thing. <laughs> and so the story of uh, that I posted on Facebook was about us watching Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. You know, I think that movie came out in 70 or 69 or whatever. And I lived so far back out in the woods, it took two years before they found out. Before you out. Got, a, got the feed? Yeah. And there was this segment in there where they blew up a train bridge. <laughs> so I think I'm seven years old at the time. My uncle, my youngest uncle, Jimmer, is eight. My cousin, Robin's nine. And my next uncle, Boog, is ten. So you take the creative minds of bored rural kids who are somewhat pyromaniacs <laughs> and it doesn't take a lot of imagination so on this facebook post i said don't let your kids watch too much tv and here's why so i go on to tell the story of my grandfather was working up on the north slope at the time they, they hadn't started the pipeline yet but he's a mechanic so he's up there working on equipment as they were getting ready and he was a fanatic waterfowl hunter he would order cases of shotgun shells because he'd drive from minnesota up to saskatchewan and that was his deal every year well, he's gone, and we're thinking, now, how do we blow up the train bridge that goes over the Big Fork River? <laughs> and we see he's got these cases of shotgun shells stored in his garage. So we go get a hacksaw, and we're sitting there. It's kind of like a Ford assembly line. One guy's using the hacksaw to, to saw the shell in half. The other guy's popping the wad out. And we had this, like, quart-sized paint can with the little screw-on lid that we got down at Hardware Hank. And we're dumping all the gunpowder in that paint oh, can. Oh, boy. And, this isn't going to be good, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> and so we, we have no idea what, you know, what kind of danger we're creating here. And <clears throat> so... The idea is, if we fill this paint can up, we're going to be able to blow up the train bridge. And, and we're so young and naive, we have no idea that if you really did blow up the train bridge, that'd be a pretty big problem, you know? What you see on TV really isn't real life, but hey, we're... <laughs> Mr. Newberg going to get a call. Yeah, and so uh, we we do this. We can, we go over and we steal about a 30-inch piece of starter rope off a chainsaw. My dad was a logger, so it takes two of us to pull the, you know, the compression of the motor is so tough, it takes two of us to pull the cord out long enough where the other guy can cut it off. <laughs> <laughs> so you can just hear the recoil of the starter rope thing. 
and now there's no starter rope on one of my dad's chainsaws. And so what we do is, if you grew up in mosquito country back then, you knew that off bug dope came in these clear bottles. I mean, it was flammable. It was like gasoline. They don't do that anymore because the reason it kept the bugs off is when you put it on your body, it peeled off like four layers of skin, you know? (laughs) And so what we did is we took a, a bunch of that bug, that off bug dope, and we dunked that that starter rope in there and that was our wick so we take a nail we punch a hole through the top of the lid and we run the the starter rope through there tie a knot in it and we're like okay this is gonna work so we make sure we put a bunch of gunpowder on it and stuff and then some i don't know this was before google so you know i mean al gore hadn't invented the internet yet so i don't know where my uncle boog figured this out but he was told that we need the gunpowder itself wouldn't just ignite from a flame you need it in like a primer on a cat you know on a shell so it was just after the fourth of july we went and grabbed a whole fistful of black cat uh firecrackers and put those so we tamped all the gunpowder down then we put the black cat firecrackers on top and we had like a pack of about 20 of them and you know how when you light the pack they'll just go boom, 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 one after another so we had that in there put the lid on and then we got in a fight over who gets to light the fuse and i was the youngest so i didn't win the fight my cousin what robin won and so one sunday morning we sneaked down to the river man we were we hardly slept saturday night we're gonna be butch and sundance all over again so we go down there right where the abutment meets the railroad grade we bury that in some gravel right between two railroad ties right underneath the rail and uh, (laughs) my uncles had just got back from vietnam and so our gift to them was zippo lighters so that's kind of not a good thing to give some seven-year-olds who are already pyromaniacs. I mean, I'd walk around, I'd, I'd run in that Zippo lighter. I'd go through two bottles of lighter fluid a week just playing with my Zippo. Well, I remember Robin bending down and lighting that fuse, and our little legs, we took off as fast as we could, and we'd dive down over the other side of the railroad grade, and it took a while. And all of a sudden, I heard a hell of a boom. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) Well, I don't know what really happened, but it made a loud noise. (laughs) And there's gravel and dust and stuff. And I remember laying there, waiting to hear the splash of the train bridge in the water. (laughs) And it didn't happen. (laughs) Finally, Boog gets up out of the, crawls out of the lilacs, gets up on the railroad grade, and he walks up there. And since he was the oldest of the four, he was allowed to swear. I mean, he used a few words that Grandpa only used. And I'm like, what? And we walk up there, and all we did was blow a little scour hole in the gravel with all of it. (laughs) We were so depressed and confused. We're like, this is like a two-week summer project, and all we did was just blow a little gravel somewhere? So the whole point of the Facebook thing was that if you did that today, imagine if your kid got caught with a pound of gunpowder in a paint can... (laughs) walking down to blow up a train bridge. I mean, all your siblings would be sent to foster homes. Your parents would be in jail. They'd be in jail, yeah. They'd be getting a call. Yeah. Homeland Security would be there, you know, tearing apart your computers or whatever. CNN would be in your front lawn doing a live broadcast. I mean, (laughs) but that was just what we did growing up. You know, stuff like that. So, anyhow, I know, folks, that's a, a tangent that probably wasn't, on the on the question there, but Dan thought when he heard me tell Hell him of a good story, <laughs> <laughs> and I could I could do twenty podcasts telling stories like that because I bet most of the people listening to this grew up. If you're kind of in the hunting fishing world, you probably grew up doing some goofy stuff because we didn't have Game Boys and Nintendos or whatever. We were just, you know, your parents said, "Get your butt out there and play." It's it's nice out today. It's above zero. They kick you out and they see it. See it back when it was right. dark. Yeah, it, it just how it was, and so you know, young minds. I, I worry about the American perspective on life going forward because kids aren't doing that stuff anymore. You can't bring a jackknife or a pocket knife to school anymore. You you can't this. You can't that. You know, if if a parent does something, they get in trouble for every little thing that their kid does. Well, kids are kids. You know. If, if they got a BB gun and they want to shoot sparrows or, or shoot swallows off the telephone lines, I mean, if you got in trouble, if your parents got in trouble for shooting swallows off the telephone lines, 
My parents Mine would, would be in jail great. still. My, my mom would have been so far back into the jail, they would have had to pipe light to her. <laughs> <laughs> Just what we did. So anyhow, long tangent. If you uh, Can I give a little plug here, Dan? Plug away. All right. Yeah. We, we want people to know that if you want to learn about our TV show that airs on Sportsman's Channel on Wednesday nights, uh, 9.30 Mountain Time, uh, July 1st, that's going to start airing. If you want to know more about this podcast, if you want to know about our Hunt Talk web forum, and if you want to download our new episodes or our old episodes, go to our new website. It's going to be online uh, when this podcast airs, it'll be online. It's randynewberg.com. And everything related to Randy Newberg's platforms, his big mouth, his crazy ideas, you're going to be able to find and follow at randynewberg.com. So that's all the more time I'm going to waste of the audience talking about promotional ideas. So. <laughs> well, yeah, we're definitely getting close to uh, an hour here. Do you guys have any wrap-up thoughts or final things to leave the audience with? Um. What are you thinking, Pat? I I, I, I I like that. I like that piece that you know we talked about. Leave it better than you found it. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody can do something. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take a lot of money. May take some sweat and some hard work, but everybody can do something to leave this place a little better than we found it. And then, you know, we always talk about it, but I mean, we got we got to get more youth into our sport. I mean, whether it be hunting, fishing, whatever the case may be, as scouts. We got to get kids out outside and, and get them from exercising their thumbs all day. Right? Can you give us? Can you give the viewers one very concrete, specific way that they can help and, and get involved, either where they can go or what they can do? I think you know. In my mind, I mean, trying. You know, you hear a lot of these television hosts talk it. I mean, I know just from talking to my good buddy Randy and a lot of our friends. I mean, we we live it. But take a kid hunting. Don't talk about it. Do it. You know. I mean, take a kid fishing. Um, you know, I mean, get them, get them involved in the outdoors. I don't, I don't care if it's bird watching. I mean, something. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me to that, Pat, and it, it again, it goes back to my dad. <clears throat> my parents were divorced when I was 11 and, uh, it was not necessarily the greatest family situation. Uh, my parents really didn't get along good before they got divorced. <laughs> they didn't get along even less after they got divorced, but my dad, if there's one thing he did that really struck me, and it didn't strike me till later in life, is deer hunting was his thing. My dad, whitetail hunting, I mean, my dad had a drinking problem, but when whitetail season came, he could straighten up, and this was what he lived for. And he would go to the hunter education class in our little town. Owen Gordon and Paul Reese taught it. Great people. And my dad would see which kid he knew either didn't have a father in the household or came from a family that didn't hunt. And he would make sure every one of those kids got to go hunting. And he would go out and he'd help, he'd bring them with and they'd go build the deer stand. I mean, not up to OSHA standards, but it was a deer stand. (laughs) And then by the time season came around, he'd go around town and borrow enough guns and ammunition and take these kids out to shoot. That opening morning, there'd be eight to ten of us in his big brown Dodge van. And he'd be dropping each kid off at their deer stand. That he helped them build. That he helped them build. Oh, great. Don't do anything. I'll be here at noon or whatever. Don't leave. Do you stay right here? If you shoot, just stay right here. And he'd do that. And it used to really chap me because I'm like, you know what? My parents are divorced. I hardly ever get to see my dad anyhow. And then I got to share him with five other kids that day. Um. And it, it bothered me a lot. And then when I my dad passed away in 2004, I went back home to Big Falls, and one of these kids who, who my dad uh, took under his wing for hunting stopped me. He's like, I just want you to know, if it wasn't for your dad, I wouldn't be a hunter. And a couple other guys heard him say that. They're like, yeah, me, me too. I, I, goosebumps. That's- yeah. And I felt bad that, okay, now my dad's dead, and I can't thank him for what he did. I I didn't I was too young to see what he could see. But I left that saying, you know what? My dad did that. That's going to be part of my legacy. I'm going to make sure that what I do it has some impact on younger people. Whether it's, you know, taking them hunting or or working for organizations that have a commitment to to getting kids involved, but so that that's how it's affected me and, and what you see in the Randy Newberg story the randy newberg vision of hunting 
it's it's heavily influenced by that. It just is. And after knowing him all these years, I know it's real. <laughs> you know, he does it. You know, he talks the talk, and and he walks the walk, and and that's. I I think we as a an organization of outdoorsmen, I won't just call us hunters, but I mean, we got to do that. I mean, we have to walk the walk. I mean, we have to. To, to literally do what we know is right, not what's easy, because it's easy to to talk it and not do it. We gotta do what's right. Yeah, I can. We go on one more topic, oh, man, yeah, before please. we wrap it up. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and this gets back to Pat and I've known each other since Moby Dick was a minnow. But <laughs> you know, we we uh, he knows my TV show is all self guided hunting on public land, and Pat comes from a ranch and farm operation which a lot of us would like to hunt on private property uh recently pat bought into uh an elk outfitting operation and uh, the reason i bring this up is there's so much of at times can be this division about oh i go guided or self-guided oh i hunt public land or private land and a lot of times people point that finger back at me and say, Newberg, you're the dumbass who started this division by doing a TV show that's all self-guided public land. And I didn't start down that path to create any division in any way, shape, or form. It was just, okay, I'm a CPA. I'm building a business plan. Where is the market underserved? And there was no other TV show that was big game that was self-guided public land. My point being is, you know, hunting is big enough for all of us. If if we want to get in these fights about well I went guided or self guided I've been on guided hunts you know and Pat I, the funny part about you know when you told me you were going to get into this uh, outfitting business I'm like here is a guy I know Pat Harlan who has spent his whole life hunting on his own <laughs> doing you know I was uh, nervous I mean I, I called him as a friend I mean <laughs> I was very nervous because it's not how I grew up I mean I grew up hunting public land like ninety nine point nine percent of us. And it worried me, but, but, but it can work. And, you know, I mean, when we, when we took wounded warriors last year, I mean, it it was probably one of the coolest experiences I've ever had, but I mean, you can make private and public hunting work. I mean, it just, you gotta have guys like Randy out there starting the conversation. Yeah. And that's what I want to leave people with is this is not about my way is better than your way. It's not about whatever, because I get so many emails in a year, and you know this, Pat, because I send them your way. It's, hey, Randy, I saw that hunt you guys did in Montana, and man, that's cool. I'd love to do it, but I live in Ohio. I've never been elk hunting. Do you have an outfitter you can send me to who maybe can show me the ropes the first time? There's so many reasons why somebody would want to, to have someone show them the ropes. A time or two or maybe it's health maybe it's just lack of knowledge maybe it's time schedules time, whatever yeah i mean i refer i i'm like the best unpaid booking service in the world because yeah. <laughs> I, I, when people call me I, or email me i'm not going to send them to somebody because i get a referral I, I mean the norm in the industry is booking agents get paid a referral fee yep i i don't want that if i'm going to send somebody to go and hunt with a, an outfitter they're getting sent there because I know for the type of hunt they're talking about, for the type of experience they're looking for, this person is probably the best guy for it. And uh, so I've got this small handful, depending on what state and what species, that I'm just funneling people there. And a lot of them are like, Randy, why you got this rap about being anti-outfitter? I'm like, I, I don't know. It's not like I did this show or this podcast or these platforms to do that. And so... I don't know, Pat, maybe you guys, maybe your clients, maybe it's not even part of the discussion, but I worry when that discussion becomes not promotion of how I, you know, I, I think it's healthy when it's promotion of, hey, this is how I did it and what I did. It becomes unhealthy when it becomes a criticism or uh, an idea that I'm better than you because this is how I do it. Well, when I looked at it, when you started doing what you were doing, I mean, in my mind, I respected the fact that you were teaching people that it could be done. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody idea. out there, what, no matter what you do, no matter how much money you make, no matter where you live, you can do this. Yeah. And you say that in the show all the time. And, and I have a respect for that because if you do put forth the effort, the time, 
you can do it. Now, again, that may not you may not have the time to do that. You may not have the wherewithal the, to want to do that or you don't want to do all the research and then you can take another avenue. But there are opportunities out there and when guided, non-guided, when, when outdoorsmen and hunters and fishermen come together, we can do a lot of good things. Right, for sure. It's, it's better for all of us. And so I, I just wanted to clo- kind of close this with the, the positive idea that when you step back and look at it, does it really matter if you hunt public or private? No. Before I started the TV show, I hunted a lot of private because I am a CPA. I've got all these ranch and farm coins. They're like, oh, you ought to bring your son out and shoot some of these pheasants. They're annoying me in the winter. <laughs> what am I going to do? Say, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's private land. No, I'm going to take advantage of it. Anyone who wouldn't take advantage of those opportunities is a fool. Well, look how many people you got out doing things now that didn't think that that they could do it because they didn't have the the money to hire a guide or do whatever. I mean, now they're out there, they're doing it. Yeah. And so for me, it's about the bigger picture. Where is hunting going? And are each of us individually and collectively doing something that is, as you said earlier, giving back or, or making it better than it was today. And it's, for me, it's that simple. And, and as long as I can have friends like Pat Harlan who will drag me out in the duck blind every December and let me be a fool, let me demonstrate what a bad shotgun shooter I am, and he'll pat me on the back and say, oh, don't worry, you'll get the next flock. I, I'm going to tell you all right now that that's not a truth right there. This could be a Newberg, <laughs> Newbergism lie because he's a very good hunter, as you all know, and he's a good shot. So... <laughs> Uh, but there's more more fun having the blind and and it's a ritual and we got to do it every year and it's it's why we do this stuff and if there's one message of the relationship pat and i have for all of those who are listening you have somebody some close friend that you probably time gets in the way of you guys going and doing your fun thing this year, make a commitment that, all right, my old buddy or my dad or my uncle or my whoever it is in your group of hunters, put it on the calendar this year and go do it. Because it's it's the part, uh, as much as I get to do a lot of cool things in the TV show, back to what you asked, Dan, of, you know, why don't I do waterfowl hunts? Those are the, ton- those are the hunts that are saved for me and my pals and my family, so... Put it on the schedule because if you don't treat it like an appointment, you'll find something will come up. Exactly, something else will happen. So, thanks for listening. This is Randy Newberg, unfiltered. I don't know how filtered I was today. Pat's looking at me like, oh, maybe he was all right today. He he didn't say anything that caused Pat to roll on the floor and laugh like he does sometimes. But uh, we appreciate you listening. And uh, go to randynewberg.com. Hunt Talk Podcast, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. That's where you're going to hear a lot of things you probably aren't going to hear anywhere else.